Hello, Real Life family and friends. Happy New Year to everyone, January uh, of 2023, and it's a new year. And as we start this new year, um, I wanted to start off with a, a series uh, more along the lines of a Bible study on the book of Romans. And uh, the book of Romans is an amazing um, book in the Bible. It's written by the Apostle Paul. And we're going to spend the next uh, maybe two months going through chapter by chapter um, a study on this great letter uh, that Paul wrote. Um, I just love, I love the book of Romans. This has been in my heart to do for several years, but I wanted to just wait for a while till I kept learning and kept growing enough before tackling some of these amazing topics that are found in the book of Romans. And so I'm excited to, to do this. I hope you join us on this journey. And I have a few goals for this series as we start this new year. And one of those goals for us as we study the book of Romans is to know God better. It's, and this is always the goal of our Bible studies and our time of messages. It's not just to learn information, but to know God better. And I pray that... Uh, you and I will grow in our experience of God, our knowledge of God. We will draw closer to God through this series. But another goal I have for us is to grow in our faith by understanding more clearly God's, God's good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ for us. As we really dive into what the gospel is, as Paul describes it in the book of Romans, I pray that our faith just grows stronger and stronger. Faith comes from the word of God and hearing the message of Christ. And we're going to hear the message of Christ in Romans. This was the message that Paul was assigned to, to take to the Gentiles, was the good news of Jesus Christ. So we're really going to hammer on the gospel of Jesus. What is it? And uh, why does it matter for each and every one of us and everyone uh, on the planet? The third goal I have for us is to learn several biblical doctrines. In the book of Romans, it is filled with just really deep and foundational uh, truths or doctrines of our Christian faith uh, about sin, righteousness, sanctification, justification, about death, about resurrection, uh, about faith. And so we're going to look in, in a little deeper at some of these doctrinal themes and really uh, solidify our foundational beliefs in Christ and in the Word of God. We want to build our lives on the rock, right, on the foundation of, of, the, of the truth of God's word. That's what Jesus says is what the wise man will do, is put these things into practice, building our lives on the truth of, of his teachings. And so that's what we're going to do. Um, I have two more goals. My next goal for all of us is to memorize what's commonly known as the Romans Road. Now, if you've never heard that phrase, the Romans Road, it is a collection of verses from the book of Romans that is easy to present the gospel with. And there's several scriptures that we're going to try to memorize over the course of this series. And when we're done, you'll have the Romans road memorized. You'll be able to present the gospel to others that God um, directs you to throughout your life. And you'll be more comfortable sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's my last goal for us, is that God would lead you to share this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ with someone else in your life. Might be a coworker, fellow student, a teammate, might be a neighbor, a family member, or it just might be a stranger that you meet along the way. But we are all called to be witnesses of Jesus Christ, to spread the gospel, to spread the good news 
of, of what Jesus has done for us to save us, to set us free, to give us eternal life. So make that commitment with me, would you? That you're going to memorize the Romans road. You're going to try to grow in, in God. You're going to try to develop your faith. You're going to try to learn the scriptures and the foundational doctrines of our faith. And you're going to look for God to lead you to share this good news with others. So let's get started. Let's jump into the book of Romans. Now, to look at the book of Romans, before we uh, get into it, I'd like to just kind of introduce uh, the author of this letter, who is Paul. So we're going to do a little background here today. And we're not going to get that far into Romans, but we'll get started. But most of our time is going to be spent on the background uh, of Romans and and the letter uh, and the author. So the author of the book of Romans is the Apostle Paul. And there is a lot written about Paul in the scriptures. And Paul wrote about 20% of the New Testament. Um, And so it's written around A.D. 57. It's likely written in A.D. 57. And Paul uh, is is his Roman name. Some some of us also refer to him as Saul, which is more of his Jewish name. Uh, So Paul was a Roman citizen, but he was also a Jew. So he may have gone gone, uh, with his name Paul, you know, in the Roman context of things, but maybe Saul in his Jewish context of things, okay? He was trained as a rabbi, uh, and his rabbi's name was Gamaliel, or G- Gamaliel. Maybe, I don't know how to say it, but I'm, I'm going to go with Gamaliel. And he was the most illustrious rabbi of the day. So Paul was trained by the best of the best in his era. Um, and in fact, this guy, uh, Gamaliel, was mentioned in Acts when the apostles were arrested by the Sanhedrin. They were brought before the Sanhedrin. And he stood up and he calmed everybody down and he basically gave this speech and he, he said, listen, if this work is a work of man, it won't go anywhere. But if this is of God, you, you don't want to get in their way because otherwise you'll be getting in the way of God. You'll be fighting God himself. So he told them to let these guys go, let these apostles go and let it play out uh, and so they, they would not find themselves fighting against God. And they actually took his advice. He was uh, the most prominent rabbi of the time. But his student, who is Saul, or Paul, who we're talking about, uh, he was under his teaching. He actually strayed away from uh, Gamaliel's advice, and we'll see that in a few minutes. So Paul, uh, he spent his early life studying the Old Testament. He was training himself to be a rabbi, and yet he missed the whole point of the Old Testament. He thought that righteousness could be obtained through observing or obeying the law. That's where he came from. Now, he persecuted the church. Paul, as a Pharisee, his view of salvation was to perfectly obey the law. And he viewed this new sect of religion, which he referred to as the way, which was the the people who believed in Jesus as the Messiah. He viewed them as a threat to the Orthodox Jewish religion. And how could a common criminal, crucified and cursed, be recognized as the Messiah? For, for Saul, uh, this was um, heretical and uh, needed to be uh, put down and, and destroyed because it was, it was challenging the orthodox teaching of the Jewish religion. Because Jesus, by Jewish law, uh, was a curse when he hung on a tree. And so Paul's like, how could people... 
project this guy as a Messiah when he was cursed and he died on a tree. That's not God. That's not who God is. Didn't fit Paul's understanding of the scriptures at that time. So this flew in the face of good orthodoxy and needed to be completely squelched to protect the Jewish faith. So Paul eagerly and aggressively sought to destroy and eradicate this new sect, including the people. Um, so he was mentioned in Acts chapter uh, 8 of witnessing and actually applauding and approving of the stoning of the first martyr of the Christian faith, whose name was Andrew. You can read about this in Acts chapter 8. Verses 1 through 3, I'll read the first couple of verses for you. It says, And Saul was there giving his approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So Saul um, basically was rebelling, in my opinion, against his rabbi, Gamaliel, who said, let these men be. But Saul, was so, he was so adamant, he was so fervent, he was so passionate about defending the Jewish faith, and he was convinced that this sect that believed in this crucified man, and they're claiming he rose from the dead, he was convinced that this was heresy, that this was wrong, and this, there's no way this could be the Messiah. And so he was, out of religious fervor, trying to destroy, uh, in fact, he was uh, imprisoning these believers, and even, the Bible says, giving murderous threats to the disciples. So he was going rogue. He was going all out. And so then Acts chapter 9 comes along. And yes, this is the Saul, this is the Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, okay? This is how his life started out. He was a religious fanatic. He was convinced that, that uh, righteousness was found through obedience to the law. And he was going all out against uh, Christianity, against uh, believing in Jesus as Messiah, imprisoning people, uh, applauding and approving of the murder of people in the sect, and seeking them out to destroy this whole movement. This is Saul. This is Paul. But this is what happened in his life. How did this guy end up writing 20% of the New Testament? How did this guy end up becoming uh, one of the most evangelical people in the history of the world for this, this faith we call Christianity? How did he become? Well, it all started in Acts chapter 9. And many of you have heard this story. I'm going to read it through for you. This is Saul's conversion on his way to Damascus. A lot of people call this the Damascus Road experience. This is what happened. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, 
he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And it says, after several days, he at once began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah. And Saul, we'll call him Paul from now on, Paul had an incredible encounter with Jesus Christ himself. Jesus appeared to Paul and changed his life forever. He opened his eyes to the truth that he really is the Messiah. And from that moment on, the rest of Paul's life was spent prophesying, testifying, preaching, and teaching that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And uh, that's how he spent his life's work. And this is the guy who wrote the book of Romans. So um, from that, uh, there are some other verses that Paul has written uh, throughout scriptures that I want to quote. Galatians chapter 2, verse 8. He said, For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so Paul's calling was to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to go to non-Jewish um, people and proclaim salvation to them because he discovered that salvation wasn't just for the Jews, but it was also for the Gentiles. In fact, it was for all who would believe that God came to, to save all who would believe in him. And so Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles. And he went on three, some say four, missionary journeys throughout his ministry, going from town to town, city to city, as far as he could go to preach the gospel everywhere he could get to. And that was his calling. In Galatians uh, chapter 1, verse 11, Paul said, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying that the gospel he is preaching, he wasn't taught this by his, his rabbi uh, Gamaliel, 
Gamaliel. <laughs> I got to work on that. <laughs> he wasn't taught by his rabbi this. He wasn't taught by the, this gospel by the other apostles. He got it straight from his encounter with Jesus Christ. Jesus himself revealed the gospel to Paul and gave him this commission to share this good news with the world. Isn't that awesome? That's incredible. And it revolutionized Paul's entire life. Here's another insight into Paul's life in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, verses 12 to 16, he writes this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, Paul writes. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Do you see uh, Paul's perspective? He sees himself as the worst of sinners. He was a persecutor, a violent man. He was against Jesus, against the way, against this, this group of people later to be known as Christians. He persecuted them. He was a blasphemer. He didn't believe in Jesus. But all of that changed. And he called himself the worst of sinners. But Christ poured out his mercy upon him, his love, um, his grace upon him and revealed to him that he was the Messiah and nobody could stop Paul for the rest of his life of proclaiming who Jesus was. And he sees that that was his great privilege that God invited him into this opportunity to serve him with his life, to give this gospel to others. Paul's conversion was a dramatic example of a devout religious person coming to the realization that God's intent for his word is to bring us into a personal trusting relationship with him, not just to obey some kind of religious dogma. God is not a distant, angry God demanding performance and obedience or else, but rather God is desiring us to know him, to experience his love, and to trust our whole lives into, this, into his hands. This is the conversion that Paul went through. He was of the most religious background a person could be. He was the most committed and zealous in his religious beliefs. And yet he was um, distant from God. He did not have the love of God. He wasn't saved. Because religion doesn't save us. Um, re religious dogma or practice doesn't save us. <clears throat> Excuse me. But Jesus saves. Having a re trusting relationship with Jesus saves. And that's what Paul found. When he met Jesus, he had a personal trust and relationship with Jesus. Obedience to God's word naturally flows from a trusting and loving relationship with God. Instead of earning righteousness through obedience, which Paul thought was the way to go, not, and realizing that, not even realizing that's impossible, no one can do it, but yet believing that that's what was supposed to happen, instead of that, Righteousness is received as a free gift from God to those who place their faith in the work of Jesus at the cross. And that's what Paul came to realize. And that was the gospel he preached in Romans. 
So not only was this good news for the Jews, but this was good news for the Gentiles as well. So the summary of Paul's life really is that he was called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And he went on three, four different missionary journeys to do this. And so most of his letters that we see in the New Testament are instructions to the various churches in the cities which Paul had taken the gospel to and preached the gospel and people got saved and churches began. And so he would write these letters. So here's the examples. First and second Corinthians was to the town of Corinth. Galatians was to Galatia. Ephesians was to Ephesus. Philippians was to Philippi. Colossians was to Colossae. And Thessalonica uh, was the, the, the letters to the Thessalonians. And, and so he has those letters there. Now, Paul wrote 13, maybe 14 letters in the New Testament. We're not sure about Hebrews. Some say Paul was the author of Hebrews. Some say he wasn't. Uh, so aside from Hebrews, he wrote 13 letters. Most of them I just mentioned. But he also wrote to Timothy, First and Second Timothy. He also wrote to Titus, and he wrote to Philemon. So he wrote these to other leaders and other people that were working in the ministry with him. Timothy, for example, uh, Paul left in charge of the church at Ephesus. And so um, he gave them instructional letters as well. And then we have Romans, kind of a unique letter. Hebrews is also unique. We're not talking about that today. But Hebrew, uh, Romans is a unique letter in that it's written to the church at Rome, but Paul had never been to Rome. Uh, he didn't plant the churches at Rome, but he had heard of the believers in Rome, and he was looking forward to coming to see them and visit them. So he wrote, wrote kind of a preemptive letter of uh, apostleship written from an apostle's perspective to prepare them for his uh, visit that he was hoping to make in the future. So that's why it's different, because in the other letters, Paul's addressing specific problems in the churches in those different areas, because he knows them. He's been there. He knows the people. Now, Paul knows some of the people in Rome, but that's not because he's been there, but because uh, he went all over the place, and some people ended up there. He's heard from correspondence of different people. But he actually has never been to Rome when he writes the book of Rome, Romans. So the book of Romans isn't addressing a lot of specific details about problems in that church and that part of the world, but Paul uses it as an opportunity to share major doctrinal themes and to set straight what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. So he's laying a foundation of all these fundamental beliefs so that when he comes, he can build on that and, uh, and continue to bless the people. So it's an awesome letter because it's a letter where Paul is almost like, I would say, in our modern-day vernacular, maybe writing his dissertation, you know, his thesis, his, his Ph.D. document of the faith. And so we get to see just pure theology in this letter of what the Christian faith is and what our faith is in Jesus Christ. So I'd like to challenge you to, to read Acts chapter 9 through 28 <clears throat> to discover more of Paul's missionary journeys, uh, the stories surrounding his life, and then you can read all these other letters as time um, is available to you of Paul's different epistles and the letters that I, I, I spoke to you. But read Acts chapter 9 through 28 over the next couple of weeks as we go through this book of Romans. It'll give you a, a greater appreciation of Paul's ministry, of what he did, where he was. And then you can see how his letters kind of reflect that a little bit. So let's go through the purpose of Paul writing this letter real quick before we get into the first couple of verses of the, of the Romans. Uh, one I already mentioned is that he wrote this to prepare his coming visit to Rome. Secondly, he wrote this to present the gospel to the church at Rome who 
at that point still has not had an apostle be a part of their ministry. So he's bringing an apostolic message to the church. And thirdly, he really sought to explain the difference between Jews and Gentiles and how God's plan of salvation is for both. Because that was revolutionary to the Jews, that the gospel was not just for them, but it was for all, for all who believe, for all who believe. And the content of the book of Romans, let's just kind of do this real quick before we get into the specifics, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's about 10 uh, what I consider major doctrines of the Christian faith, the doctrine of sin, of salvation, of grace, of faith, of righteousness, of justification, of sanctification, of redemption, of death, and of the resurrection. So there's 10 of them right there. I know some of those words are bigger words, but when we get to them, uh, they're really easy to understand, and we'll break it down for us, okay? And also in, Ro in the book of Romans is what I referred to at the outset, the Romans road. Remember, a collection of verses from Romans that has been famously used to lead people to Christ because it's a simple way to explain the gospel uh, to people using these verses. Now, one other interesting uh, thing I want to point out to you before we start looking at the actual verses in chapter 1 is that this is also famous for an incredible shift in our faith history. Back in the 1500s, something happened in the church called the Protestant Reformation, or it's just known as the Reformation. And this was um, kind of spearheaded by Martin Luther because of a verse in Romans chapter 1, actually verse 17, where it says, The just shall live, or the righteous shall live by faith. And this one verse changed the course of our history um, and is a, a, a just a huge shifting point. Uh, in church history along the way. Up until that point, there was only one church, basically one combined authoritative body of um, Christendom known as the Roman Catholic Church. You know, there, there was just one church. Today we have all kinds of different churches and denominations, but we have basically two major groups. One is Catholicism and one is Protestant. Right, The Protestants. Protestants and Catholics. We have this huge um, kind of branch of those two areas. Uh, and then under Catholicism, there's not a lot of variety there. But then under Protestantism, there's, there's just all kinds of different churches and denominations like Baptists, Methodists, Wesleyans, and Lutherans. And there's just on and on and on. There's all kinds of different branches there. Well, this all started at the Reformation. The Reformation, there was just one, the Roman Catholic Church. They had the Pope, um, and what the church said was um, authoritative. So you had the scriptures, and you had the church. And uh, one of the problems with that is that over time, there began to be some traditions adopted and different things added to the church experience that were, quite frankly, unscriptural and abuses. One of those interesting um, parts of, of, of history of the, of the Roman Catholic Church in the beginning there, uh, in this time frame where Martin Luther was challenging, was the practice of indulgences. Just to give you a real simple idea here, this is one of the things that really uh, caused this uh, division, was that uh, an indulgence would be where uh, you could pay to get a certificate of forgiveness. You would pay money um, 
or you would, you know, you'd pay to be forgiven or to have like a spiritual favor or, or spiritual pardon before God. And uh, to, to be overly blunt, it was as if the church became a middleman for people's salvation. And, um, and God was for sale, in a sense. Now, I, I'm oversimplifying this, please. Uh, this is not that simple. But this is just kind of the general feel of the time, was that the church was overstepping its boundaries in terms of being a middleman between God and people. And, and, uh, and the scripture was that we could come to Christ, all who would believe, but the church got in the middle there and began to do these types of practices. So on October 31st, of 1517, Martin Luther published um, a document entitled Disputation on the Power of Indulgences, or 95 Theses. And this was his argument of the things that the Roman Catholic Church were doing wrong, that they were doing that were unscriptural, weren't backed by Scripture. And he was challenging the status quo of the day. And, and you know, the, the major part of that was the indulgences practice of the indulgences. And that began a firestorm of debate and uh, all kinds of uh, friction that eventually led to a split and the creation of Protestantism or uh, people who were going to believe in Jesus that were not going to be under the Roman uh, Catholic Church any longer. And so that's, that's a huge part of that. And that all came out of a revelation that Martin Luther had personally from Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that the, the righteous shall live by faith. And it was about faith being the means by which we are saved, not works, not deeds. And so um, this is an age-old uh, issue with, with people and religion. Is, is it my works that please God that cause me to be saved? Or is it really just my faith? I trust and believe in God. So the line that, that was drawn was, it is by faith that someone is saved, not through works. And Paul, Paul experienced this. This happened 1,500 years after Paul, but, or not quite that long, but Paul wrote about this. This was his personal experience. He was under the heaviness of works-based ideas and theology, and then he met Jesus. And when he wrote the book of Romans, he was radically pushing the gospel is all about faith, not works. The works will follow the faith, but, but you don't get faith by works. You have faith. You trust in Jesus, and then he changes you, and then the works come from that faith in Jesus, from that relationship. So Paul personally went through this, and Martin Luther was under that cloak, and he read this, and God spoke to him, and it totally changed his life, totally changed his life. Now, whereas the Roman Catholic Church uh, tended to hold tight to doctrinal truths, you know, one of the problems of the Protestants is that they reveled in their freedom and personal preferences with God. So a major benefit to the Reformation was the return to Scripture as the authority of our faith, not just what the church says, not just what the Pope would say or what the church decrees to be right. Um, so in, the, in that time frame, the Roman Catholic Church had two authorities that were equal. One was the Scriptures and the other was what the church said. Okay, And they were equal. 
But Protestants said, no, it's what Scripture says is our final authority. And so they challenged the authority of the church. So actually, coming back to the authority of Scripture is a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, the church held, that the, held power over the people with its interpretation of the Scriptures. And as a result of the Reformation, the power of the church was challenged and rejected by the Reformers because of the perceived abuses or errors of the church authority. So that was a good thing. If you have something that's going wrong, that's off of Scripture, that's not true, um, that should be challenged, right? Because Scripture is our foundation for truth. But a major drawback to the Reformation was a rise in different views of Scripture leading to different denominations of Protestants. Once the structure was removed or the authority of the church it's as if everybody wanted to create, over, over history, over time, everybody wanted to create their own church with their own opinions and their own preferences. That's a bad thing. I mean, today, um, it's, it's really quite comical. Today, in the United States, we have 200 different denominations of Protestants. And worldwide, get this, you ready for it? 40,000 different churches. Different Protestant denominational churches. Not churches, different denominations, beliefs. 40,000. That's a bad thing. <laughs> so, you know, this is just to catch you up on a little bit of history where all of the different denominations came from. Because once they started disagreeing on this interpretation, a new church is born. And then, well, we don't quite see that verse the same way, so we're going to start our own church. And so it's just scattered all over the place. And even today, we're seeing this happen right now where some people are looking at Scripture and they're, they're interpreting it a certain way and creating a whole different movement. I just want to caution you with this. I believe very strongly that there is a role for the authority of the church, but it's under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And uh, in our church in particular, we have a, uh, a council of elders that make sure that I'm accountable to them and we're accountable to each other and we're ultimately accountable to the Holy Spirit and to Jesus. And if, there's, if we're heading in an erroneous direction or if something is I say something wrong or something that doesn't line up with scripture there's a process for us to correct that uh, I'm not in charge what I say isn't uh, you know isn't scripture it's not equal to scripture if it's wrong it needs to be corrected right and so but within that understanding we believe in the Bible we believe that the scripture is God's word so we hold the scripture as our final authority with the help of the Holy Spirit to lead and guide our spiritual family forward. And uh, I think that's very important. Once you begin to say that I don't agree with this or I don't agree with that, you're into uh, very dangerous territory because this is the word of God. Amen? So that's what we believe. We believe in the word of God it is our final authority. We also believe that the, the church... Jesus Christ appoints leaders over his church for the benefit of the believers, to care for them, to guide them, to coach them. The Bible says to teach, rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness, in God's way of doing things. That's what Scripture is for. That's what godly leaders are for. But let's be truthful about this. Godly leaders are still human beings. And there are times when all of us, myself included, fall short. We fail 
I, I know I've said things before in the past that were a little bit off. And so I have to get corrected or I have to correct it because we're, we're human, right? But we are submitted to the Holy Spirit. I need to be submitted to the Holy Spirit as your leader, as your pastor, as your shepherd, under shepherd, under Jesus. And that's how the church should work. In communion together, in community together, seeking the Holy Spirit and valuing the Word of God as our truth. So all that to say, um, let's dive into Romans chapter 1 for a few minutes, just to cover a couple of things, okay? We won't have much time uh, left here to get too far into it. But in Romans chapter 1, um, verse 1, it, let me get to that if I can find it real quick. Um, this is how this, the, the chapter begins. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the first thing I want to mention about this first verse is Paul introduces himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is not the first and last name of our Lord and Savior. Uh, we know this. Uh, if you didn't know it, uh, Jesus is his name, but Christ is his title. It's not his last name, and it's not part of his name. It is really should be said something more like this. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, the Anointed One. And that is a loaded statement. If you've studied the Scriptures, and in all, as Paul says, through the prophets foretold that he was going to come, all of the promises, all of the scriptures, all the prophecies in the Old Testament are pointing to God raising up a Messiah who will save his people. And when Paul says Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah, that is a loaded statement. We are declaring by faith Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the one that all these scriptures have talked about. And he's here. He came. All right, it is a hugely loaded statement. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. So Christ is kind of from the Greek language, uh, of the equivalent to the Hebrew language, which would be Messiah. So you have Christ in Greek, you have Messiah in Hebrew. Those are kind of transliterations of those words. Um, and so the only proper uh, relationship that we have with this Jesus, who is the Messiah, who's the King of Kings, who's the promised one, who's the Son of God, is as his servant. We serve him. We are his servant. Uh, there is no other posture that we can take before Jesus. And yes, Jesus loves us. <laughs> and yes, Jesus calls us his friend. But make no mistake, we are his servants. And Paul is a bondservant, a slave for life to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that is where our faith begins, is we call him Lord. We call him King. We put ourselves down. We bow before him. We surrender our lives to service to Jesus. That's the Christian faith. That's where we begin. And that's where you need to begin and I need to begin. Because from that point on, he, whatever he says goes, Whatever his truth is, is my truth. And uh, I serve him. I lose my life 
and I entrust it into his hands. That's what faith is. That's what faith is in Jesus as Messiah. And so I want to encourage you to take that posture before him today as Paul is taking that posture as he writes this letter to the, Rome, to the Romans. The second part I want to mention is in verse 3 and 4, which I already read, which in the New King James Version, I'm going to read um, the, the translation here. It says, Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now what this means is that Jesus came through a natural human descent or, or had uh, descendants. He came from the descendants of David. Now, the Messiah had to come through the lineage of David, and Jesus did. When you trace that through uh, the book of Matthew, you can see his lineage. And so this is the human side of Jesus, the human side of Jesus. He was fully human. He was born of Mary. Uh, now, he was actually born of God, but... He was born of Mary, okay, as, as his human part, and he descended from David. That's what according to the flesh means. But then the verse goes on and says, and declared to be the Son of God, so here's his God part, with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So you have according to the flesh, and you have according to the spirit. So Jesus is both fully human according to the flesh, a descendant of David, but fully God, the Son of God, according to the spirit of holiness. And so we have Jesus coming to us, fully human and fully God. He had to be fully human so he could fully represent us and fully redeem us from our current state of humanness, fallenness as humans. But he needed to be fully God because only God born without sin, not into our sin, but born without sin, could live without sin and qualify himself as our substitute. Because no one could give our life to pay the penalty of our sin unless they already didn't have sin to pay for. And the only one that could do that is the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And so we believe, and, and a good sound doctrine says, that Jesus is fully human and fully God. And we need both for us to be saved. He needed to be without sin, which he was born without sin, born, of, born as the Son of God, not born into human sin, but born without sin as the Son of God. He lived without sin with the help of the Holy Spirit so he could qualify as being fully human to pay for our full human debt of sin on your behalf and my behalf. Hallelujah. Now just finish with this idea. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, uh, Peter is preaching this, this message. And he says to, his, to the crowd here on the day of Pentecost, he says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, the human, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so the, the human part of Jesus was crucified on a cross. He suffered for you and for me. He was rejected, spit at, uh, beaten, stripped, ridiculed, made fun of. He took all that upon himself, physically, humanly suffering on our behalf. Jesus, the human part. His human name, Jesus, right? But the resurrected part of Jesus is Lord, Messiah, Christ. And don't you love how, how Peter says this? God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. You saw him. 
both Lord and Christ and the Messiah through the resurrection. And uh, that's just such a powerful, powerful idea. The weakness seen in Jesus in the sense of a suffering servant turns to power as the resurrected Messiah. God obviously approves of Jesus' work at the cross uh, for man's redemption by raising him from the dead. Jesus' words now take on ultimate authority and his works and miracles confirm the presence of the kingdom of God has come to the earth. Faith in Jesus becomes the means of our salvation, completely replacing the old system of law and works. This is what Paul is about to write about. This is the foundation of Paul's message. The Jews could not wrap their mind around the possibility of a common criminal crucified on a cross becoming their Messiah. That didn't make any sense to Paul until he met Jesus in his resurrected form. Didn't make any sense to them. And the Greeks did not see the philosophical wisdom in Jesus' words. And so uh, he, Jesus was disqualified by both Jews and Greeks for different reasons to be who he claimed to be until the resurrection. But God, in his perfect wisdom, made a way for his justice and righteousness to be satisfied through the death of Jesus on the cross while at the same time revealing his grace to sinful man and providing salvation to all who believe in Jesus. Paul said it this way in another letter of his in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We'll get to this next time, but I do want to read this final verse for us. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes. Become a believer today. If you've just been a, a, a practicer of religion, switch that over to knowing Jesus, to believing in Jesus, to trusting in Jesus, to putting your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Uh, so I'm going to pray for you uh, before we finish this, this lesson uh, and the introduction to the book of Romans and a couple of verses that you would be able to trust in Jesus with your life. Pray this with me. Say, Jesus, today I choose to believe to place my faith, my trust in you. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And I believe and I trust my life into your hands because you are the only one who could pay my debt of sin. And you have. You have come to demonstrate God's love for me by paying for my, my penalty of sin, rescuing me, out of the bondage of sin and death itself and giving me the gift of eternal life. Today, I receive you. I place my faith in you and I, I, I give everything I have, my entire life to you. In your name, I trust and believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'd like to encourage you to stop by the church if you're not able to get here uh, on Sunday mornings and pick up our Romans Road Life Journal to help you memorize the Romans Road 
verses. Stop on by. We'll get you a copy so you can get going on that. And each week, read that next chapter. So this week coming up, read Romans chapter 1 again because we're actually going to do a lot more of Romans 1 next week. And start to study it. If you have a a study Bible, read the study notes. It'll really help encourage you to learn more and more. But I'm excited to go through this book. It's going to be a powerful journey. We're going to study the book of Romans together. Stay with us. We'll see you next time. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in his name. Amen. Amen. See you next time.